The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management, LLC, is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. So Dave, this is one of those podcast episodes that No offense to our guests, I kind of wish no one listens to because it's something that I hope no one has to go through. We're talking today about money do's and don'ts before, during, and after divorce. So obviously a tough topic, but if you are dealing with divorce, I can tell you finding good information, it's it's really invaluable. So our guest today to talk about this is Stacy Francis. Stacy is a nationally recognized financial expert and president and CEO of Francis Financial, a wealth management firm specializing in helping widows and divorcing or divorced women. In addition to being a certified financial planner, she is also a certified divorce financial analyst. And she's the founder of a nonprofit organization called Savvy Ladies, which educates and empowers women to take control of their finances. And to date, Savvy Ladies has helped over 20,000 women through free one-on-one financial counseling workshops and retreats. So that's a favorite organization of mine. So I'm excited about that. But welcome, Stacey, to talk about the less so fun topic of divorce. Thank you, Jessica. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's funny to say welcome to the podcast where we're going to talk about one of the worst things that could go on in somebody's life. And uh, <laughs> Exactly. But it happens, right? I mean, I, I'm just going to throw out a common statistic that I think is accurate, which is I, I think like half the people who get married go through a divorce. And so like, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. And I think a great way to start the podcast is to ask that question, just start with that bottom line up front. What should someone know who's going through a divorce or going into a divorce? Going into a divorce is probably a better way to, to phrase the question. Yeah, three things. Number one, your lawyer's not your friend. Number two, the spouse who's more financially astute, well, they've got the leg up. And number three, assets can be hidden, but it's a lot harder if you know what's going on with your money. So three very important things. Right. So so start out with that. Your lawyer is not your friend because my natural assumption would be I'm hiring an attorney and they are going to represent me in my best interest. Why am I wrong? It may not be that you have to worry about them representing your best interest. It's just that for them, this is their job. They're not the person to talk to about the emotional piece of this. That's why you want a therapist and, you know, paying five hundred dollars, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred, even nine hundred dollars an hour to a lawyer to listen to how hard this is 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 not ideal. Also, your lawyer should advocate for you, but they are not your friend, meaning that they don't know necessarily what's most important to you. Your friend most likely does. And so you need to make sure that you understand uh, that you share with them what's most important to you. Is it keeping the house? Is it a certain amount of money in spousal support for so long? Is it the retirement account 
or is it the checking account? What is your piece that's most important to you? So again, don't use them as your therapist or as your friend about the emotional difficult part of this process and make sure they know what's important to you because they're not going to know unless you tell them. That's great advice. And and I can actually add in a little bit of personal experience there too, because throughout the course of the 15 years of Monument, we've had to retain attorneys for certain issues. And boy, the very first time I was venting to my attorney, thinking that, you know, he was a sympathetic ear, uh, he was sympathetic with the meter running. So once I got that bill and thought, well, I realized pretty quickly that he wasn't my friend either. So that's great advice because I think people really want that sympathetic ear, especially in a really emotional situation. And they tend to, whoever's giving them attention, they're going to, you know, want to talk to them and, and just vent a little bit. But that was great advice. Get a therapist or something else because talking to your lawyer. So that's great that you clarified that because it's not necessarily that they don't have your best interest in mind, but it's just, you don't want them to to be the sympathetic ear with the, with the meter running. Yeah. So how about the comment that you made about the spouse that's more financially astute has a leg up? Talk some more about that. Yeah, it's really true. You know, when we work with clients, we typically, Dave, are working with clients who usually were not in the driver's seat of the finances. And for them, they're starting this divorce process and they have a huge amount of homework to do to really wrap their mind around what all the assets are, liabilities, expenses, and income. At the same time, you know, find the the right team, the right professionals. And then third, you know, navigate this process. I have seen far too many times where the more financially astute spouse actually uses financial information to leverage their role, their, you know, settlement agreement in the divorce. They, you know, will not share all of the information that's needed to make good financial decisions during the discovery process. And the person who really wasn't part of the finances has to advocate for themselves, sometimes even have their lawyers issue subpoenas to get access to that information. And in the end, we're not always assured that we have all the financial information. So that's number one, just understanding what the assets and the liabilities are. But number two, it takes a long time to really get your brain around what the finances of the marriage looks like. And someone going into the divorce process who understands that off the bat can much more effectively negotiate. They often are much more successful as well because they really understand what the most lucrative, the most valuable assets are and where the pitfalls of the finances are in the divorce too. So it's a big, big must for individuals to understand where you are financially. And if the divorce comes to you and you haven't really wrapped your head around it, make sure that you have the right professionals on your team, not only a lawyer, but in your case, you might want a certified divorce financial analyst to essentially do the heavy lifting and get you up to speed as quickly as possible. See, I would have thought that by retaining an attorney that they would have done a lot of the back work on making up for the lack of financial understanding or astute understanding of of everything. Like I would have thought that's what you're hiring them for. That is what you're hiring them for, but they typically don't go to law school because they love math. 
And that's not what I'm saying. That's typically what lawyers tell me. It's very rare that you're going to find a matrimonial attorney who is also a certified divorce financial analyst, who also has an expertise in the financial end. There's very, very, very few of them in the U.S. And I have seen far too many cases where the matrimonial attorney doesn't really understand the assets. They don't understand the restricted stock units or the stock options, don't understand deferred compensation, how private equity really should be valued. There's so many pitfalls that can happen through the divorce process and just relying on your attorney to understand all the finances unless it's an unbelievably straightforward financial case, you could really be putting yourself at risk. That's interesting. And, and and you also made the comment that assets can be hidden, but it's a lot harder if you know what's going on with your finances. I wasn't under the impression that you could really hide anything in this day and age. I mean, there's social security numbers, there's statements, there's wire transfers. Like Other than squirreling away cash for two years before you get divorced and burying it in your backyard, is there an example you can use that sh- people should be on the lookout for on that or... We see it in a lot of our cases, actually. And there are two different types of assets. There are those assets that you can find in plain sight that the person is not sharing in discovery. So essentially what you're having to do is you're having to go to the court, you're having to issue subpoenas to numerous financial institutions trying to find things. That's number one, things that are in plain sight. Then there are things that are not in plain sight. And those things might be opening a cryptocurrency account and you're not opening it through a Coinbase where you can find it. You're opening it on the hard drive and it's stored on your computer. You're sending money offshore, which still can happen. You are listing the value of commercial real estate or some type of private equity at a certain value when the person very clearly knows that it should be valued at a a higher or lower amount. You're not disclosing all of the income sources. If you're receiving rent from a commercial property and some of that rent's being paid in cash, you're only disclosing what's hitting the tax return. We've seen so many different naughty things. I I feel like I could write a book and it would be the really good basis of a Sherlock Holmes movie. And I do want to clarify, I mean, this is not the case in all situations, right? This is not the case in all situations. But if individuals want to hide income or they want to hide assets, there are a lot of ways you can do it. And of course, we can find them. But the cost of finding them for the majority of individuals going through divorce is absolutely prohibitive because it is very expensive to hire what's called a forensic accountant. And again, most people can't do it. Most people can't do it. And so they're really, unfortunately, behind the eight ball. So let's say you're, you know, someone listening to this, you're thinking about getting a divorce. So no one's served anyone with divorce papers yet, settlement agreement, you know, you're just thinking about it. What are the top three things that you should do? And what are the top three things that you should not do? Great question. Number one thing to do is to get educated. So a lot of what we just talked about can be alleviated by understanding what your assets are. And how do you do that? Well, if you have a financial advisor, attend 
the meetings. If you don't have a financial advisor, start to have what I call a financial date night once a month where you talk about the expenses, you talk about the assets. And if you're unsure how to bring this up without sparking some type of concern, because that's the other thing I hear a lot of women say, like, I've never been interested in it. You know, all of a sudden I am, you know, watch a movie where the husband dies and she is left overwhelmed. And so there are plenty of those through the Hallmark Channel and Lifetime. And just watch one of those with your spouse or you watch it and you relay it and say, I just don't want to be in this situation. Can I please be a little bit more involved in the finances? It scared the jeebers out of me. So number one, get educated. And so start to look at the mail, see what institutions things are coming from. Make sure you have usernames and passwords to all of the accounts that you hold together as a family. Start to do a analysis, what I call a lifestyle analysis of what your expenses are. You can use mint.com, personal capital. They can all track your expending for you online to make it a little easier and get a copy of your credit report so that you can see exactly what the liabilities are that are in your name and those that you might share with your spouse. Those are some quick and easy ways to really get on top of that first part of getting educated about what's going on with the financial aspect of the marriage. And then what about things that you should not do? Things you should not do. One of the things I've seen individuals do is essentially use the marital funds and and start to buy certain things that they think can be assets long-term. The biggest one is jewelry. So they'll buy jewelry thinking that that's an asset that they can take from the marriage. All of a sudden, spending a lot of money is, is not a good thing. Also, during the divorce process, that's not a good thing. Also, if you are have joint assets, let's say you have a joint checking account, there's $20,000 in that draining that joint checking account and putting it into your own account. That's another big no-no and you'll want to make sure that you, you know, talk to a lawyer. So essentially play fairly. I mean, I, I don't think that anyone listening to this wouldn't play fairly, but, you know, the biggest thing not to do is, is don't change your behavior, you know, continue the way you are. Like I said, get educated and The biggest piece is don't put your head in the sand. That would be the other biggest piece. Looking at a possible divorce is very upsetting. And know that starting to plan for it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. So don't put your head in the sand and make sure you get your team together. Start to interview, most importantly, attorneys. Get them in place. Number two, if you do feel like you need a certified divorce financial analyst, start to interview them. And number three, as part of getting that team together, make sure that you have some type of emotional support, whether it's a therapist or it's a a divorce coach or some other type of coach, so that you can go through this process as, as supported with the right experts on your team. So, a quick question about the certified divorce financial analyst. Is that how does somebody retain that person? And what does it look like when they enter an engagement with them? Is it like an attorney where they charge by the hour? Is it a project-based relationship? Tell people who are listening to this exactly what that means when they retain somebody like that. Great question, Dave. Certified divorce financial analysts, they typically have 
an additional designation. Ideally, you're looking for them to have what's called a CFP, Certified Financial Planner, and that they are a financial advisor that has worked in this area of divorce for many years and ideally worked on hundreds of cases. Only about 2% of CDFAs are in that category. Most CDFAs work on one, two, maybe three or four cases a year. And it can be a problem because it's not really their superpower. They do it as an ancillary service in addition to what they do. So this goes into the conversation of how divorce financial analysts charge. There are some certified divorce financial analysts that don't charge you anything. They're typically the ones who work on one, two, or three cases a year. The reason they don't charge anything is they work for one of the big companies, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo. They're not allowed to charge for their CDFA work. And so instead, they do that work for you for free, but you have to transfer your assets to them afterwards, after the divorce is final. Sounds like a good thing, but there are some real big conflicts. Number one, if you want to keep the house and have your spouse take the $2 million brokerage account, well, there's a little bit of conflict of interest that they have. They don't want you to keep the house. They're going to want you to take that brokerage account because that's how they get paid. So know that going in. And then also know that you know the less hours they spend on your case, the better for them, right? So you may want to invest in working with a CDFA that works hourly. That's how a lot of advisors work. They work hourly as if a, as a lawyer might. Some CDFAs will work on a project. So if you want me to do your settlement agreement and model that out, that might be $3,000 or $5,000 or some people might charge $20,000. It really depends on the complexity of it. So the good news is, is that there's a divorce financial analyst out there for you whatever you're looking for, whether you can't pay, but you have a significant portfolio that you would be willing to give them to manage afterwards, whether you just want to work hourly or if you want to work on a retainer basis. But that actually is a great thing that you bring up, Dave. The most important thing you can do is is to understand how someone charges and also what your deliverables are what they're going to do for you and, and what to expect. Because I would, I would imagine that at a moment in time, you're making a decision to hire a potential, I'm using your first case scenario where they work at a big firm. You could be hiring somebody to help you get through the divorce, but, but that's a moment in time. And then you're going to be, you're also going to extend your relationship with them for almost into potentially into perpetuity as they manage your money too. So And a lot of times, I would imagine that when people get divorced, there is the separation of the assets, and they also want separation of advice that they're getting and everything else. So it may be a natural selection point for them to hire a new financial advisor because they've been using the same one. They want to separate that out. But that was really informative. Thank you for that. But okay, so now let's fast forward. You're getting a divorce, right? Let's talk through what should be on your financial checklist for divorce. So that financial checklist for divorce, what should you be doing immediately as you negotiate your divorce agreement and set yourself up for the long term after your divorce? Yeah, so there's a lot of pieces to think about. Number one, doing what is called the statement of net worth in other states that might be called a financial affidavit. And it's a listing of every single asset 
every single liability and every single expense. All of that work that you've done before you started the divorce process is going to really pay off for you here because you're going to be able to fill that out in a very informed, conscientious way. So that's the number one thing. Then really modeling out and thinking about if these are my expenses, what is it going to look like post-divorce? For most individuals, their expenses actually go up post-divorce. And unfortunately, what happens, particularly for women, is their lifestyle falls by at least a fifth, at least a fifth. And that's why the group of individuals who we see the largest population of individuals living in poverty above age 65 are women who are divorced. And so understanding very clearly, these are the expenses I had during my marriage. These are the new expenses I'm going to have as a single woman, potentially as a single mom, so that when you're negotiating for your settlement agreement, that that's taken into consideration, particularly for purposes of child support and purposes also of spousal support. And when we think about those expenses, it's not just the expenses of today or tomorrow, particularly for the children, but as they get older, we tend to underestimate their expenses. Expenses for a one-year-old or a two-year-old are very different than a 13-year-old who, my daughter, does indoor skydiving. I love indoor skydiving. She loves it too. But can I tell you, it's unbelievably expensive. Every time we go, it's over $100 for her to do indoor skydiving. And then, of course, she has orthodontia. And we're on our fourth year of orthodontia, which is thousands of dollars. And then other than those activities, maybe tutoring, extracurricular for school, we also have college coming down the line. The more clear you can be about these future expenses, the better you can navigate, number one, how to negotiate for yourself, make sure that these issues are spoken about and really addressed in the settlement agreement, and then also so that you're prepared to tackle them after the divorce too. So you mentioned in the beginning about the lawyer not being your friend, and I was asking some questions about that, but I would think coming back to the lawyer, and maybe the CDFA also, but in my mind, that's the lawyer who's saying, here are all the things that you need to negotiate through me as it relates to this divorce. So would a person, I mean, it's great to have a checklist, but is the backstop the attorney there also? Is a good attorney going to say, here are all the things that you're not thinking about, summer camps, orthodontia? I mean, everybody kind of thinks about how do we split up the assets? Who gets the house? The really obvious things, but those, those things that come up in the future... They should be leaning on their attorney for that, correct? Yes and no. I've seen some attorneys have a fantastic checklist that they give to clients, which includes every possible expense out there. But I've also seen some attorneys where they get that statement of net worth, and I know what it looks like because we get it too. And every single expense ends in a zero or a five. So it's very clear that the person just ballparked, right? We know that they've ballparked and we can very clearly see expenses missing. Last week, I I received one of those and there were no vacations, no vacations, right? We know that people go on vacation, especially now post-COVID. So 
I would not just rely on your lawyer. There's a great checklist in the white paper that I know you're going to have a link to called Unveiling the Unspoken Truth. And it has a beautiful Excel spreadsheet. You can either get it in Excel or you can use the actual PDF there with every expense you could possibly imagine, plus some that you didn't think about. And the other piece is, you know, in addition to that, if you have young ones at home, talk to someone who's 10 years ahead of you who has kids and they're going to tell you this is what it costs for soccer. This is what it costs for sleepaway camp, which can be, you know, if not five, six, seven thousand dollars a year. This is what it costs for extracurricular. This is what it costs for SAT, you know, ACT testing. All the things that you may not think about that are really going to be important. But I wouldn't leave it up to the lawyer. This is your divorce and you're ultimately responsible. Stacey, can you talk about some other things that should be on people's checklists? Like I'm thinking specifically about updating trust and estate documents and the beneficiaries on your retirement accounts, life insurance accounts. I mean, people tend to list spouse as the primary beneficiary. And obviously, you've everyone has seen the news stories about person dies, they forgot to update 401k beneficiary to their new spouse and their ex-spouse is inheriting a multi-million dollar account. Yeah, Jessica, I'm really glad that you brought that up. You know, especially post-divorce, there's some really important planning that you you need to do. And the first one is to update your estate planning documents. And that means your will. And that is the document that essentially directs where your assets go to whom. And then also your beneficiaries. And your beneficiaries are what you list on your 401k, on your IRA, on your life insurance. If you have a brokerage account that's a transfer on death, these are all assets that actually that beneficiary directs to whom they go to, even if your will has been updated and says someone else. So you want to do both, update the will, and the will's gonna cover anything that doesn't have a beneficiary on it. So let's say your car. Typically, you wouldn't have a beneficiary on your car, but you say, you know, all personal use assets are going to go to blah, blah, blah. And then that is listed there. Anything that has a beneficiary, you wanna make sure that beneficiary is updated too. And that that, is not your ex-spouse. Now, there sometimes is a situation where an ex-spouse will want to keep you as a beneficiary or you are needed to keep your ex as a beneficiary. And that's particularly life insurance. If there's life insurance that is insuring child support or insuring the payment of spousal support, we do see that quite often. And usually what ends up happening is that the person paying child support or paying spousal support keeps the person receiving that income as the beneficiary on their life insurance because we know that spousal support and child support ends at death, right? So you would want to have some type of life insurance to what we say insure that support for that period of time. Once you've updated your beneficiaries, you've updated your will, you also want to update what's called your power of attorney. That is someone who can make essentially financial decisions for you if you cannot. And it essentially is very important if for some reason you're incapacitated, you can't pay your bills, they can step in to go ahead and do that for you. And then finally, there's your living will, or some people will call it a healthcare proxy, 
who can make medical decisions for you if you cannot. And for most of my clients, they do not want their ex-spouse making medical decisions for them and deciding whether or not they're going to pull the plug. So those are really important things to do to make sure that you are protecting your assets and that whomever you want your assets to go to, whether it's your children, a charity, a a family member, that it's going there and not going to your ex-spouse. Right. So Stacey, you have so much good information to share. I want to do some rapid fire questions just so we can talk about some more topics quickly. So do you recommend selling the marital home and receiving more in a settlement or keeping the house? Well, one of the biggest pitfalls we see is people, particularly our clients, wanting to keep the house because it adds stability for the children. But we've seen that sometimes it's not financially feasible. So look at it financially. Can you afford to keep the house? Not only the maintenance payments, can you pay for the mortgage? Can you have it refinanced into your name? And then when you see the black and white with the finances, then make that decision. Right. And thinking about, do you need the roof repaired in a couple of years? And and that's sort of, yeah, all that. Yeah, all those pieces. And, you know, if you have to sell it in three years, it makes sense not to keep it. Instead, I would recommend that you, if at all possible, co-own the property and sell in that three-year period. Let's say the kids are then going to college so that then your ex-spouse can have to split the maintenance, have to split the selling costs, have to split the any of the capital gains that, that might be created from selling that, that asset. Right. Well, that's a good point about capital gains because how much you're allowed to waive on a primary residence changes if you are married and then gets cut in half if you are single. So that's a great point. So if someone came into a marriage with assets from starting their own business, what part of the business is the ex-spouse entitled to? So this is a tough one. The asset comes into the marriage. Whatever the value of that asset is as of the marriage date is what is called premarital. So typically not subject to be split in a divorce. But if there has been growth in the value of that business, which for the most of the people, that is true, growth from the date of marriage, then that increase in value of the business may be subject to be split, can be considered marital. Something to know, however, about businesses. Business, it's not typically like splitting a checking account that was, you know, 100% marital. A checking account you would think is more 50-50. For businesses, depending on the role of the non-business owner spouse in the business, we've seen businesses be split 10% to the non-participating spouse. I've seen 30% percent as well. And only in a few cases where that person was really a a co-partner in the business that we saw that the value of the business be split even higher than that. Same question, but what if instead of a business, it's an inheritance that someone received before marriage or, you know, I think you clarified premarital assets. So I'm kind of curious also in terms of like, if someone receives an inheritance either before marriage or during you know, at the time of marriage, or also similarly, if someone received, you know, monetary gifts from family members, you know, parents are trying to reduce their estate, so they made gifts, you know, in the annual exclusion amount. So I can remember this very easily, and I'll give you a kind of, you know, all the listeners a, a cheat on how to remember this. Inheritance starts with the letter I. 
I for individual. It is that individual's who receives it. And it doesn't matter if that inheritance is received before they're married or during the marriage. It is individuals. It is the person who received it. But this is where the big but gets. You have to keep that in a separate account and make sure that you're not mingling it with assets of the marriage. And let me give you an example. Client started to work with us. We're going through her different accounts. She says, oh, our brokerage account, it's $2 million, but a million dollars of our joint brokerage account was a a gift to me from my father. Now, unfortunately, what has happened is that that person took what was an individual gift to them and put it in a joint account that also was in the name of their spouse. Now, she might be able to prove the portion that is actually from the inheritance and what the growth on that was, but the burden of proof is on her and it's not so easy. Another situation we'll see is where someone puts money in an inheritance account just in their own name, which they're doing all the right thing, but then they take money out for living expenses or they take money out to repair the roof. There, again, you're using individual money for marital expenses. And that's where it gets wishy-washy. And if I were to visualize, have you all visualize this of, of why it's so important to just put it in a separate account and not use it for marital expenses and not put any marital money in it, it's like adding one glass of water to another glass. How do you really delineate what came from the first glass and what came from the second glass. You, you really you really can't. And that's why you have to be so careful about which accounts that inheritance goes to and that almost like you, you lock it up like a lockbox. Nothing goes in and ideally nothing goes out unless it's for your own separate property. So an example of where that could really become messy is if one of the two spouses ends up with an inheritance and they say, well, great, let's take some of the money that we got from the inheritance and pay the mortgage off in the house. Mm -hmm. Boom. You've washed that money into the marital assets and that's that's going to get divvied up. Yeah, and, and it's going to be really difficult and it's going to create a fight and a ton in legal fees, I can guarantee. So if one spouse receives stock compensation, like stock options or restricted stock units, often called RSUs, can they be divided as part of a divorce settlement? So the answer is yes, but you have to be very careful. And I just want to say this is one of also the most overlooked assets I see. Make sure that you have a full understanding of the compensation that your spouse has from their employer because the majority of individuals have either stock options, restricted stock units, or deferred compensation. It's not like it was 20 years ago where very few people, you know, even just new workers who have been in the field maybe 5, 10, 15 years with their company have this. But what's unique about these types of assets is that you can't just go in like a checking account or a brokerage account and say 50% goes to him and 50% goes to her or him, however the structure of your marriage is. 
the way that you are able to divide these assets is that you have to have your lawyer write in the divorce agreement that these assets are going to be held in a constructive trust. Once they vest, because what's unique about stock options and restricted stock units is that they can't be sold until typically a certain date, what we call a vesting date. At that point, you can do anything you want with them. And so in the agreement, we say, once they are vested, 30 days after they have to be sold, you know, within that 30-day period, they have to be sold, and then half of the proceeds transferred to the non-employee spouse. That's pretty complicated, but guess what? There's one other complicating factor is who pays the taxes. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> so according to the IRS, the employee spouse who holds those RSUs or those stock options, they pay the taxes. That's what shows up on their tax return. However, in that settlement agreement, it has to be written not only constructive trust, but that the amount that the non-employee spouse gets is net of taxes. So after taxes have been calculated and paid. It's very important because I've seen this done incorrectly many times where number one, there's no constructive trust and they say just divide it. And then of course they realize they can't and they have to go back and redraft everything, legal fees there. Or number two, they do have the constructive trust, but they don't have the right terminology for the taxes. And the employee spouse, I'm working on a case right now, is paying 100% of the taxes and their ex is getting all the money tax-free. So now they're going back to court and having all those legal fees. So really tricky. Make sure you have the right advice because otherwise it it's, can be a disaster. Last rapid fire question. When's the best time to start working with a financial advisor during divorce? You know, I'm a planner, so you can tell that I'm I'm biased, right? right? I, I plan for things. I mean, a spreadsheet and, and a plan just makes me feel cozy. It's like a little soft blanket for me. You know, as soon as you're contemplating that this may not be the right long-term relationship for you, it's good just to talk to an advisor, a financial advisor. If you haven't done so and you're in the divorce process, that's okay. But the sooner you can have them weigh in, the less in legal fees you're going to pay because they can help make the process more efficient and alert you to what that settlement agreement should look like from the perspective of what do you need financially. So it might just wipe out very quickly the argument about who's going to keep the house because you look at it financially and it's very clear that you should not be keeping the house, that you can't afford it. So it can save a lot of money as well. But I, I think for a lot of individuals, and it could be very frightening. Like, how do you find these people? Like, who hangs out with divorce financial analysts, right? Not too many we people. Do. I mean, I know <laughs> we do. We yeah. do. Dave, Jessica, and I, we are nerds. And, and we know <laughs> that's what we do in our free time. But your typical person doesn't even know where to look. I'm going to take the last question here as we kind of wrap up. But it ties into a couple of questions I've been asking previously. What are your recommendations on finding divorce professionals and picking the one that's going to be right for you? Great question. And actually, it kind of queued up, I think, just from our last conversation. A great place, and I'll talk about financial advisors first. If you go to the IDFA, International Divorce, or sorry, Institute of Divorce Financial Analysts, it's a, it's a website. You can go and see if there's a CDFA that, that has an expertise in 
in your unique situation, if it's highly complex assets or, or whatever, also talks about how they charge. So it's a great, great resource for you. You don't necessarily have to have someone in your local area. It can be anyone throughout the U.S., whoever you feel like is the best fit with the way they charge and what their expertise is. So that's a great resource, number one. And then interview them. And I'll send you a list of questions to ask and interview CDFAs. I think that's very helpful. It'll help you make sure that the person is the right person for you. And then there's the matrimonial attorney, which can make or break a divorce. I I say that. And that person does need to be in your locale. So someone needs to be ideally within your hometown or within your county because they need to have great relationships with attorneys. If you're looking at litigation, that's a must. If you're looking for a mediator, you still need to have them having passed this bar of the state that you are in. And that less so is focused on them being, you know, friends with the judges, but you do need them again to have passed the bar within your local state. And how do you find these great people? Talk to individuals who have gone through the divorce process. I feel like that's one of the best ways. And you're going to hear horror stories and you know not to work with those lawyers and you're going to hear some great stories too. You can also talk to the CDFA that you're working with because they will know the best attorneys or mediators in your area, particularly if they're a CDFA that's done a lot of work. I know about 300 different lawyers across the United States. Now, granted, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I I, I know I know more than most CDFAs, but good CDFAs have actually worked with dozens and dozens of professionals, matrimonial professionals. So they can also help steer you based on if you need someone who's very litigious and really going to advocate for you, or if you can go through the mediation process, have a great mediator because you're able to negotiate very well together and there's a lot of respect between the couples and both of the couples are are really doing this with real faith, full faith in the process. So I think finding that team is one of the hardest things to do and why just starting to interview people I think is really helpful. It really is. Yeah, you have to find that person that you can trust and also is qualified. So, but that trust element I think is important. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear more from Stacy, you can check out her podcast, Financially Ever After. And then as Stacy mentioned, we will have a link in our show notes to a great white paper from Francis Financial called Unveiling the Unspoken Truth, the Financial Challenges Women Face During and After Divorce. So this white paper is great because it's based off of interviews that they conducted with over 150 women who are going through a divorce or have gone through a divorce. And I think the, the results of the study shed a lot of light on the emotional legal and financial difficulties that that women in particular face during and after divorce. So check that out. Stacey, thank you so much for this great conversation, for sharing your years of experience and your knowledge. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been great. Thank you. This is really fun. Love your podcast. I love what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We're having a lot of fun with it, aren't we, Jessica? Say yes. Yes, for sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little delayed, but all right. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay, Stacy, thanks so much for being on Off the Wall. We really appreciate it.
The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.